take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, as we will finish off this chapter this morning and actually go into the next four verses of chapter 21. We see a very distinct contrast before us in the text this morning. Let's begin reading in Luke chapter 20 at verse 45. Again, throughout verse 20, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the religious leaders have been challenging Jesus in the temple courts over and over again. And each time, Jesus has responded in godliness and wisdom and truth. Beginning at verse 45, And in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Let's pray together. God, we come before you as, as people who have gathered to hear your voice, your truth, to draw near, Lord, to your person. And Lord, we know this is, this is only a desire of our hearts because we have trusted in Christ. And so, Father God, draw near to us as we draw near to you. Give us understanding into your scriptures, Lord. As we have worked our way through the entirety of this Gospel of Luke, we pray again that you would let your word be living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the very marrow of our being. Showing us our sin, Lord, bringing us to conviction and confession and building us up, Lord, edifying us in Jesus Christ who is our all in all. Do your work in our minds and hearts, O oh God, that we may be clearer, brighter reflections of you. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Well, I do want to say that I appreciate your prayers for uh, a group of us that went up to Nashville today to participate in an outreach ministry up there. It was, a, it was a fruitful weekend, and the rest of our team, I came back last night to have a good night's sleep so I could be here to preach this morning, but the rest of our team is still up there ministering even today. You know, it was very interesting just yesterday, standing on a street corner in Nashville, passing out gospel tracts engaging in gospel conversations and even preaching on the street corners it was interesting how even in that environment the difference between the world and the church was on clear display during our time there there were there were many people that came by believers in christ that that were encouraged by the preaching of the word you know they were so thankful they expressed thankfulness they expressed prayers for us they even took tracks and we encouraged them take these and hand these to others as a believer in christ you too are an ambassador for christ but also at that time the world was on full display just yesterday afternoon i stood on a street corner preaching to you at preaching on that street corner just as compassionately as I preach to you all every Sunday. 
And every five minutes, one of these big party buses goes by in Nashville, buses where the roof's taken off. It's, it's basically a bar on wheels filled with people who are drinking, celebrating whatever occasion, loud music, partying. And as I'm there on the corner, one of these buses pulls up yesterday afternoon, and, and they see that there's street preaching going on there, and they immediately change the song in the bus to Highway to Hell. And as they change the song to Highway to Hell, everybody in the bus erupts, chanting, standing up, screaming, yeah! And they go around the corner, celebrating that they are on the path to destruction. Brothers and sisters, it is, it is clear. There's only two kind of people in the world. Those that know Christ those that don't. That's what we see in our text this morning as we compare the last four verses of chapter 20 with the first four verses of chapter 21. Jesus himself here is giving us a comparison. He inspired Luke to write his gospel in this way so that we see back-to-back -back a comparison between those who are clearly out for themselves, those who are clearly living for the glory of self versus one who is living for the glory of the Lord. Sadly, those who are living for the glory of self are the religious leaders of Israel. And sadly, the one who is living for the glory of the Lord is the one who is an outcast in Israel. Let us go into the text and consider these two persons, these two groups of persons this morning. As we see, very simply, just two points this morning. We're going to consider first the one who is worthy of condemnation and secondly, the one who is worthy of commendation. So let's pick up first at the end of chapter 20. Again, as Luke continues his narrative of Jesus' teaching in the temple courts, he moves right into one of Jesus' strongest, most forthright denunciations of the religious leaders. The fact of the matter is that the Jewish men who were leading the religious establishment in Israel, they were nothing more than wolves in sheep's clothing. Over the past day or two, there had been a lot of positioning and questioning and scheming on their part. And every time, Jesus had put them to shame with his wisdom and his interpretation of Scripture. So now, for the good of his own disciples, as well as for the good of the multitudes who were listening to him, he gave a direct warning about what dangerous hypocrites they really were. He specifically singles out the scribes here. But it's clear that he's speaking to all the different leaders in Israel who taught scriptures, who directed the religious life of Israel. He's speaking to the scribes, the lawyers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, everyone. And in his warning, we see at least four characteristics that earn them the condemnation of God, our judge. The first thing Jesus says that they do is they make a show of righteousness. Those who are worthy of condemnation make a show of righteousness. Verse 46 says that they are men who like to walk around in, in long robes. Now the robes being referred to here are much nicer than the common robes worn by citizens in that day. And they were adorned in a way that drew more attention to them. If you look at the parallel passage in Matthew 23 verse 5, it says that the Pharisees, these scribes, these Sadducees, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. And they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. So what was distinguished about these robes that the religious leaders wear? Well, a phylactery is a, a little leather box. You see, back in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 6 and Deuteronomy 6, God told them to bind his word on their hearts and on their heads. 
God meant it spiritually, physically, but the Jews over time had turned this into a literal observance where they had a, a little leather box at the end of a long leather strap, and they, they put little pieces of parchment or vellum in there that were inscribed with biblical text, and they would wrap them around their forehead or they would wrap them around their arm. And you know what? The bigger your phylactery, the bigger your box with scripture in it, the more spiritual person you were. God also told them to put tassels on the corners of their garments. And he did tell them to do this. And those tassels were to remind them of the commandments of God so that every time they felt or looked down at the corners of their garments, they would have this reminder of the commandments of the Lord so that they would be a people who pursue purity and holiness as the Lord would have them. But once again, the religious leaders made a show of this. They made huge, long tassels that were very ornate because they wanted to be noticed by men. They wanted, to, they wanted the people to think that they were being especially faithful to the Scripture so that everyone would think that they were exceptionally pious and righteous. But the sad reality, brothers and sisters, is that their hearts were far from God. As Jesus said, they were like whitewashed tombs, seemingly oblivious to the fact that God does not look at the outward appearance of a man. God looks at the heart. And you know, even this is a good reminder for us today because even we as Christians can fall into the same trap today. Outwardly, we can look like we've got it all together, right? Especially in the social media age, we like to present that, that picture of ourselves that has it all together, that everything's going right. Look how great my kids are. Look at all these wonderful places we've gone. Look at all these good things we're doing. And we like to project out there that we've got it all together, that everything is going well. And you know what? When everything is going well, praise be to God. Praise be to God. But let us not make the error of thinking that we have to project some persona that's not true. You see, outwardly, we can look like we've got it all together. We can look like happy, content, righteous church members, but it just be a show of righteousness and not the truth of our hearts. We can be sh making the show of righteousness and yet have hearts that are full of lust, hearts that have a penchant for anger. We can be apathetic in our walk and cold in our love toward Jesus Christ. We need to remember and understand, brothers and sisters, that no matter how much we dress up the outside, it is our heart that needs change. It is our heart where we want to reflect the mercies and the goodness and the blessings of God. For God sees what is in secret, and he despises self-righteousness and hypocrisy. Secondly, we see here that they crave earthly recognition. They crave earthly recognition. The remainder of verse 46 here says, and they love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honors at feasts. This, again, is the religious leaders. They love to go out into the public square and be acknowledged by men. And, you know, it's not like they would go out there and people would just say, Hey, Joe, how you doing? No, they, they wanted the honorable titles. They wanted to go out in the marketplace and, and have people respond to them by saying, Greetings, most honorable reverend doctor, sir. They preferred titles that gave them exalted status in the eyes of others and greetings that represented the subserviency of others to their superior spirituality. Secondly, in the synagogues, the chief seats or the seats of honor were the seats that were closest to the sacred scrolls of the law. 
And those seats were usually reserved for visiting religious dignitaries or the elders of the village. But those were the seats that the religious leaders felt like they deserved. They just automatically assumed every time they walked into any synagogue, those seats of honor are my seats. Thirdly, in banquets and feasts of that time, kind of the same principle, the most prestigious guests were seated near the head table or at the head table with the host, particularly at the host's right hand. Again, this table would be the one with the most ornate settings, the most delicious displays of food, the place of honor. And once again, in their minds, the religious leaders, they didn't just desire that place of honor at the feasts, they felt like they were entitled to it. Well, as Jesus said in Matthew 6, those who crave the admiration of men have their reward in full. Those who live this way that is described here, they prove that they are man-pleasers who live for the pleasures of men, who live for self-glory rather than Christ. And we want to understand from our perspective today that, that Christians can't live like this. These two ways of life are irreconcilable. As Paul said in Galatians 1.10, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You can't be someone who lives for the pleasure of men, who, who, who lives to get their regard and their honor, and yet still be a person who lives for the glory of Christ alone. Those things are mutually exclusive. We are called to be bondservants, brothers and sisters not religious showmen. We're called to be servants in the same vein as Christ was a servant. John English Lee just preached an excellent excellent servant, this sermon this past Sunday on what servanthood is, on, on what service is. And I want us to understand, you don't know whether or not you, you are a servant-hearted person based on whether or not you serve in some way. You know whether or not you're a servant-hearted person based on how you respond when someone treats you like a servant. So how do you respond when someone treats you like a servant? That will reveal your heart. That is the calling on our lives brothers and sisters, when we feel, when we have a mindset that we are entitled to some honor, we can be sure that pride has taken root in our hearts. Thirdly, Jesus says here that they are known for vicious greed, that the religious leaders were known for vicious greed. Verse 47 says that they are the ones who devour widows' houses. And as we know from previous studies and sermons, widows often had a very difficult time living in this historical setting. Women had very few means by which to support themselves. So when a woman was widowed, she most frequently had to either get married or she had to depend heavily upon her adult children just to survive. Women who were more elderly, who did not have children to care for them, often had to resort to begging. And one of the key assets that widows would be left with was the family home or property. For most women in that time who were widows, their home would be just a very modest home. Well, apparently the religious leaders who were supposed to be providers and protectors of widows instead became their predators. We know from previous exchanges how most of these men had a great deal of wealth and property and how they had made an idol of wealth in their lives. These men even taught people that having wealth was a sign of God's blessing upon the faithful. So apparently, in the name of serving God, they viciously took advantage of the most vulnerable people under their care. 
Devour here is a very strong word in the Greek. It means to savagely and zealously consume. What these men did was they pounced upon widows during their time of need in order to take their property for themselves. And you know what? The religious leaders of Jesus' day were just repeating the same error of their forefathers, the same sin of their forefathers years before. Ezekiel 34, we see God rebuking the shepherds of Israel because rather than feeding the flock of Israel, they were feeding on the flock of Israel like wolves. They were prideful, entitled leaders who thought that their people existed to serve and support them rather than them existing to serve and support the people. Again, brothers and sisters, this is a reminder to us of how, how greed can seep its way into our hearts. Of how we can come to a place where we are putting value on the things of the world rather than the things of Christ. How we are setting our hearts and, and even coveting things and properties and material possessions of this world that we desire more than we desire our Savior. Don't allow that kind of greed, dear Christian. Fourthly, Jesus says here that they blaspheme God with their prayers. Look at verse second half of verse 47. And for a pretense, they make long prayers. Now, what is prayer? We know this. Prayer, quite simply, is talking to God. Prayer is talking to God. For the Christian, prayer is an act of worship where the believer communes with God, expressing his adoration, confessing his sins, affirming his need and dependence, trusting to the Lord all burdens, and submitting himself to God's will with all thankfulness and praise. That's what prayer is to look like for Christians. It's our joy. But that was not true for the religious leaders. Rather than praying in a humble manner that put the focus and spotlight on the Lord, they prayed in a way that put the spotlight on themselves. They blasphemed God by taking one of the most intimate acts of worship that God has given to his people and using it to serve an idolatry of self. That is why Jesus then gives what are, what are probably the six most ominous words that we find in the Gospels. Jesus says, they will receive the greater condemnation. They will receive the greater condemnation. You know, the New Testament gives us the idea that there will be degrees of reward in heaven. And it's statements like this one from the very lips of Christ that likewise seem to teach that there will be degrees of condemnation in hell. Now, this reality is not fully explained, but it does. It is the truth. Hell is a place where the wicked will experience for all eternity the holy torment of God's wrath and where every person there will be completely deprived of any of the relief and mercy and goodness of Christ. All of the wrath of Christ. None of the mercy of Christ. That is what hell is. And those who knew better, those who had the clear teaching of Scripture, those who claimed fidelity to God all while they took his name in vain and blasphemed his person, they would receive an even greater condemnation, Jesus says. Greater wrath, greater darkness, greater fire, greater agony, greater loss, greater misery, never 
ever ending. What Christ warns us of here, brothers and sisters, are sins which could characterize any of us. You know, as I looked over this list, these are things I've seen in my own heart at different times, sins that I've had to deal with and confess. I confess to you, especially more as a younger man, but I have to be on guard even of this today. You know what? Sometimes when I stand before you in this pulpit, there's a battle going on between my flesh and spirit. There's that part of me that wants to pray that, that amazing prayer so that you all think I'm a great prayer. There's that part of me that wants to, to preach that great sermon so that you all will think I'm a great preacher. And those thoughts enter my mind and my head and I have to go to battle immediately so it does not take hold Whenever we do good, sin is crouching right at the door seeking to take hold. And I have, to, I have to engage my mind and try to take every thought captive to Christ and fight that flesh and say, not me, but all to Christ. And in those moments, do you know what I cling to? Do you know what we can all cling to? Is that Jesus saves prideful, conceited people like you and me every moment of every day. For those of us who want to look good outwardly and robe ourselves in our own self-righteousness, those of us who want to look good on the outside even though we're falling apart on the inside, we need to understand Jesus saves us. Jesus never sought to make a show of his person and power. He always wanted the glory to go to his Father in heaven. He cleanses us from our pride and our conceit. And you know what? You know what Jesus gives us to robe ourselves in? Jesus gives us a robe of his very own righteousness. And there is no robe that compares to the robe of Christ. For those of us who are men-pleasers, who crave earthly recognition, Jesus came as the lowly son of a carpenter. Jesus did not crave earthly recognition and earthly power because he knew there was a glory far greater than the glory of men. So what did he do? Jesus became a bondservant, a slave. He humbled himself even unto death to save prideful and entitled people. For those who are driven by greed, for those who would prey upon the weak and wounded rather than serving them and supporting them, Jesus saves us as well. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Do you know the only thing Jesus devours? The only thing Jesus devours is sin when we come to him in faith. It is devoured on the cross. As all that we could ever do to sin against a holy God is laid on Him as He makes atonement for our sin. He redeems the greedy. Praise and glory be to Christ. And you know what? For we who blaspheme God with our pretense, for those of us who take prayer and, turning, and turn it into a means of serving and glorifying self, Christ forgives us as we trust in Him too. And, and this is something we can all struggle with. You know, we, we struggle with offering those prayers that we want people to like. And I have to say this, you know what? Sometimes our refusal to pray out loud is also because we're thinking more about men than we are about God. 
Jesus Christ forgives us. He touches our lips with the burning coal of his purifying spirit, and he transforms us into a people who, who proclaim his excellencies. Christ saves blasphemers. And thus, brothers and sisters, where there was once a greater condemnation, in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation. That's the beauty of the gospel. That is the glory of our Savior. May we run to Him and rest in and trust in and know His forgiveness. That takes us then to the, the second part of our text. We looked first at the, the one who is worthy of condemnation. Now we turn to the one who is worthy of commendation. And what happens next in the text serves as a stark contrast, contrast to the warning that Jesus had just given to his disciples and the people. Now remember, when Scripture was originally written, there were no chapter and verse divisions. This just read as one long narrative. And so on the heels of denouncing the ungodly religious leaders, Jesus had the opportunity to commend the example of a faithful widow who, gave, who came to give her offering. And in this woman, we see a heart that is the exact opposite of the religious leaders. What do we see in her? First of all, number one, what we see about this woman who deserved the Lord's condemnation, or who received, rather, the Lord's commendation, she showed no pretense, just simple obedience. She showed no pretense, just simple obedience. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 21. Jesus looked up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. You know, the temple during the day was always full. There was no doubt numerous people in the temple that day, and many of them were putting their offerings into the offering boxes. If you look back in history, around the, the, the uh, kind of a, a, a semicircle in the temple, there were 13 different offering boxes, tall boxes with an opening at the top. And people would come there, and they would put their offerings in. Now, how did Jesus know who was rich and who was poor? Well, Generally, you could tell who was rich and who was poor by how they dressed. The rich would have been in more ornate clothing. The poor would have been in more worn and old clothing. And we want to remember that back in that day, people didn't give online like we do today, and people didn't give in a check in an envelope like we do today, or even use paper money, cash in an envelope today. Money back then was all coin. It was all coin. And so it would have been very obvious how much people were giving. Very apparent, who was depositing a lot of coins in the boxes and who was depositing only a few. Now, if this, woman, if this woman, if this widow feared God rather than men, she might have waited until another time of day, maybe later in the day or very early in the day, when there were no other people giving and certainly no rich people giving who might have looked down on her to ridicule her. That's what she would have done if she feared men rather than God. If she was a man pleaser, if she wanted people to think more highly of her, she might have tried to dress differently, even if she had to borrow clothing. And she might have tried to make her offering look larger than it was. She might have tried to put those two copper coins into a bag that was somewhat larger so it looked like she was putting a little more in that offering box. And if she were trying to make a show of her humble offering... She might have paused at the offering box to give a loud prayer. Lord, you know what a humble widow I am living in poverty, and I commit these, all that I have, to you. She didn't do that. There was no such display. She came to the temple unafraid to present herself humbly, without pretense, 
as who she really was. She came and she faithfully put her gift into the box, two small copper coins, two pennies. In her devotion to the Lord, she was not steered or swayed by the opinions of men. Her obedience was faithful and simple. Her Lord said, give, so she gave. That simple. Brothers and sisters, do you ever stop to think of how we have an uncanny ability to complicate and excuse ourselves from obedience? So the Lord says, says to us today, give sacrificially. And we say, yes, Lord, we've got it. But inflation is up. Gas is 50 cents more expensive than it was two weeks ago. They're tightening up things at work. We're really trying to save for that new bedroom furniture set. Mm, so we think we're just going to keep everything in savings this month. What about another example? God says, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. We say to the Lord, got it. But, mm, you know, pe people know I'm a Christian, I think. I, I don't want to say anything that would offend anyone. You know, talking about Christ in the gospel today, it can get you canceled. It might even cost me my job. I don't even wear a Christian t-shirt in public because, you know, one of those radical liberals might call me out, say something to me that would be unkind. So it's good just to live morally and quietly. Dear Christian, understand that Christ has set you free from a fear of men. Pretense of any kind. Pretense of any kind. Pretending to be something you're not. Hiding from the world. That should never characterize us as children of God. God has given us Christ. And as Paul says to the Romans, will he not also with him freely give us all things? Yes! is the answer. So may we fear God and not men. May we fear God and not the economy. May we obey simply and faithfully and sacrificially without fanfare or pretense for the glory of Christ our King who supplies everything. Secondly, what do we see about this widow? She acted sacrificially, trusting in the Lord's provision and promises. So she came with no pretense, and she came trusting in the Lord's provision and promises. Again, this text is one of the key texts in the New Testament where we learn that the new covenant standard for giving is sacrificial giving. The tithe, or giving one-tenth of your income, that was a standard that God gave to Israel back under the old covenant. All the tribes of Israel were commanded to make sure that they preserved one-tenth of their produce or their herds or their profits to deliver to the Levites every year to support the ceremonial life and the spiritual leadership of Israel. And I think that the tithe is still a good principle when we talk about where to start giving today, but it is not a law under Christ. As I preached last week, when Christ is our king, when we truly know and understand Christ is our king, every priority of our life is to reflect his supremacy. Our time, our moments are his. All that we have, all our possessions are his. Our thoughts, our will, our actions, our pursuits, our desires, all belong to him. And therefore, our greatest contentment and peace, our greatest satisfaction and joy, the greatest beauty and splendor we could ever hope to experience is in Christ. 
Now, when we as believers really understand that, when we really understand that we are co-heirs with the Lord of the universe, that we have a spiritual inheritance, a spiritual wealth that is beyond comparison with the things of this world, and that we stand to inherit all the spiritual riches of the Godhead by being in Christ's presence forevermore, if we really understand what that means, it truly changes how we view and use our earthly resources. You see, this woman knew that her God owned the cattle on a thousand hills, that the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. She might have even heard Jesus teaching earlier in his ministry. Back in Luke 6, 38, Jesus said, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Maybe this woman heard that teaching of Christ months or years earlier. 2 Corinthians 9 tells us that God loves a cheerful giver, and it also tells us that he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. This widow gave sacrificially, trusting, believing, knowing that God would meet her needs according to his riches and glory. Not so for the scribes and religious leaders. The scribes and religious leaders, they trusted in the earthly wealth that they had amassed through their scheming and greed. They did not practice sacrificial anything. All they did was demand, take, steal, devour, keep, and hoard. They proclaimed their trust in God, but they really only trusted in themselves. And so let's ask ourselves this morning, brothers and sisters, are you trusting in your storehouses more than you're trusting in Christ? In your retirement account, in your pension, in your paycheck, in your home, in your assets? Are you fearing the uncertainty of the world and therefore you're very timid and minimal in what you give? Or do you understand yourself to be a steward of God's resources, managing and using what he has entrusted to you for his kingdom in, in a spirit of thankfulness and praise? You see, this widow trusted the Lord's provision and promises and therefore she gave everything. And on this day, as it was happening, the incarnate Lord of glory was there to bear witness to what she was doing. That's the third thing. The Lord of glory commended her humble dependence on Him. The Lord of glory commended her humble dependence on Him. Look at verses 3 and 4. And He said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Whereas other people in the temple that day might have pitied or judged the woman for giving such a meager offering, that is not how Jesus reacted. If someone else saw her put in only two pennies, they might have thought that she was a miserly widow. But Jesus saw what no one else could. He saw her heart. He knew what no one else could have known. He knew that out of her extreme poverty, she had put in everything she had to live on. Now, now, if we pause right there for a moment, when we hear that, we might be tempted to call this a foolish decision, right? Think about this. If, if a widow in our church, if a widow in our church came one Sunday morning and, and we knew that this particular widow, all she had was her meager social security check, no pension, no, no life insurance from a previous relative, nothing, 
All this widow had was her social security check, and we found out that this widow in our congregation was planning to give the entirety of her social security check for the month to the church. If we found that out, we would probably try to stop her. We would remind her that she had a house to take care of and utility bills to pay and medicines to buy and groceries that she would need if she was going to live. And we would do that out of our care and concern for her. And I do want to affirm that there is great value in counting the cost and being proper stewards. When we look at this text, the application of this text is not that we're all to take a vow of poverty and bring every cent that passes through our hands into the church every Sunday. That is not the teaching of this text. There is great value in counting the cost, in being proper stewards, in taking care of your responsibilities and your family and enjoying what God has given while also giving sacrificially. That's the pattern of how we should live as generous stewards of God's resources. However, there are occasions where this happens. There are scriptural instances where God commends radical giving. Think about Mary, the sister of the sister of Lazarus. Mary and Lazarus and her family, they were by no means wealthy, yet Mary came and she anointed the feet of Jesus with a bottle of perfume that was worth an entire year's wages. In Acts chapter 2, verse 45, it says that when people were in need in the first church, that members would go out and start selling all their possessions to meet those needs. And in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 2 through 4, listen to these verses. 2 Corinthians 8, 2 through 4, Paul said of the Macedonians, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Paul is commending the Macedonians because they gave beyond their means for the privilege of supporting those in need in Jerusalem. So we might think that this woman made a rather extreme decision, but our Savior commended her. This woman put in more than all of them. And when Jesus says this, he doesn't mean that she put in more than any other single person. It's not like Jesus knew who the richest guy was and knew what he put in and said, yeah, this widow put in more than him. No, it's greater than that. Jesus means that she put in more than all the other givers in the temple that day combined. You see, Jesus wasn't speaking of what one person gave in comparison to another. He knew what each person had, and he was comparing, he was comparing that to what each of them gave. As Jesus said, everyone else that day was giving out of their abundance. They were giving out of their leftovers. They first met all their other financial obligations, and then out of what was left, they gave it to the Lord. But the widow gave all she had to live on. This is a beautiful quote. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on this passage, he said, Jesus held in his hands the balanced scales of eternity. On one side, he emptied the contents of all 13 of the offering boxes in the temples. The shekels, the denarii, the heavy gold and silver. And on the other side, he placed the two minuscule copper coins of the widow. And the massive load of the rich gave way to the eternal weight 
of the widow's tiny offering. Why? Why did she do this? As Philip Graham Ryken said, the Bible doesn't tell us why she did this, but it is pretty, pretty simple to discern what she had to believe about God to do something like this. She had to believe that God was glorious because she was giving him all her earthly treasure. She had to believe that God was gracious because she was responding with the kind of costly generosity that only grace compels. She had to believe that God was provident because once she had nothing left to live on, she would have to depend on him for absolutely everything. To her everlasting credit, here was a woman who offered God unconditional faith, undying gratitude, and unrestrained praise. Brothers and sisters, when we hear that, don't we want to live like that? I know I do. I pray we all do. Oh Lord, give us the heart of this widow. Jesus says in Matthew 6.21, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It is beyond question that this widow treasured the Lord and her heart was commended by Jesus. How is your heart? If you were to be seen, if you were to stand before your Lord today and he were just to observe just the normal course of some of your daily activities, would the Savior commend your heart? Are you living this kind of life of faith? A life he would commend? If so, praise and glory be to God. But if not, know that your Savior loves you still. And as it work in, and as it work in you to sanctify you and bring you to that place, and brothers and sisters, when you think about it, when you really just boil this down and think about it, what Jesus is commending in the woman is the reflection of his own heart. What Jesus is commending, what he sees in this widow is a reflection of his own heart. Because how did Jesus give? Jesus, too, gave everything. Everything. Jesus held nothing back from the Father when it came time to satisfy the, the Father's wrath for sinners. Jesus held nothing back. He gave it all. He gave all of Himself, all of His blood, all of His body that we may know forgiveness and grace and redemption. That we may have a new heart that can walk with Him and know Him by faith. That we may have a heart of love that overflows, that looks not to this world, but to the life to come and knows that there is our inheritance, there is our hope, there is what we live for. And so, Lord, while I'm here, take it all. That's the heart of Christ. May our Lord give us that heart. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we are stunned. We are humbled when we come again to consider Christ, our beautiful Savior, our glorious Lord, who humbled himself to save the prideful like me, 
who gave of himself to save the greedy like me, who died so that we who deserve death could receive life and grace and forgiveness and peace and adoption and the certainty of a future glory. Oh, Father God, make us like Christ. Help us, as we have even heard this today, to love Christ more. To put off the things of this world. To stop holding back. To stop fearing men. To stop fearing the world and the economy. To go. To love. To give. To sacrifice. To obey. In a simplicity of devotion that reflects that we love Jesus with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.